0: Welcome to another Whitehead Moncton podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about education, education, law, and all things school. It'll be myself, Graham Jones, one of the directors in the family and education team, along with uh, another fellow director, Antonio Fletcher, a recent joinee with us, who is the firm's expert on education law. Is that a fair description of you, Antonio? <laughs> do you think? Well,
1: I think I think jointly
0: we we, we
1: have that <laughs> title, don't we? I think. Let's go with that. Joint specialist.
0: But but we, we do come at the education sector from different angles though, yes. don't we? Yes, we do, we do. Um,
1: I think between us we've got a, a many years of cumulative experience within schools and the school environment.
0: No, no mentioning ages
1: at this <laughs> point, of course. <laughs> um I myself, I'm a trustee of a local uh, multi-academy trust. Uh, I was previously a governor uh, at a maintained school as well. And I know uh, you, Graham, have... Various appointments. Yes. We've had various appointments. I, well, what past.
0: what made you get into the the governor side of things in the first place? I
1: think it was uh, from my perspective. I'd already worked within the education sector for about seven or eight years in terms of my clients. I also have uh, a wife who is now head of school. Uh, wasn't at the time, but she's she was a very keen advocate for me to get involved and help the local community. Uh, and uh, the, the two things combined with an interesting opportunity to become a governor at a local school and uh, yeah, I, t- I took the leap and enjoyed seeing it from uh, from the inside out rather than the outside in.
0: Mine was completely different to that, I'd have three boys and when they started school, I mean the eldest now 29, when they started school I thought because I worked so hard their education could just pass me by. And so I was t- chatting to the head teacher and he he mentioned about governorships and I'd never heard anything about it before. And he said there was a vacancy. So I stood and I was appointed. This was the Edgerton Primary School. And it sort of snowballed from there. I only ever intended to be involved in it whilst my children were at school. But mm-hmm. I went through a number of schools as a governor. I was chair of governors for a considerable period of time. I was a a local league governor working on IEBs and I've sort of stood back a bit now and the only current appointments I have, I'm a, like you, I'm a director of a schools trust but I'm also a trustee of a university education establishment so I'm sort of seeing the education system all the way through having started yeah. at infant and primary level and now <laughs> working in it up to uh, university level.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to see actually the challenges that, that uh, further education institutions have Uh, many of which are quite similar, actually, to to schools uh, and multi-academy trusts uh, from from the school's perspective. But but they also have additional uh, challenges when it comes to um, the funding elements and the looking after of, let's say, young adults as opposed to uh,
0: uh, children. Yes, Uh, I, I think one of the interesting things is most parents don't appreciate what goes on in the running of a school and I'm sure a lot of parents will be surprised to hear that the governors and the directors are all volunteers, they're not paid roles and it's a considerable commitment because it is a complicated um, beast to run a school. And if you're talking about a multi-academy trust, you have many millions of pounds going through that. It is is a little business in its own right. Oh yes,
1: definitely, definitely. And, And actually I think that that's one of the things that's changed over the course, or or certainly developing into change uh, over the course of the last 15 years or so, that that with the advent and increase in academies and academisation, there is much more of a focus as looking at the trust and the trust finances in particular, almost as if uh, it is running a business effectively, trying to find different sources of income, uh, using those to the best potential, attracting uh, pupils and parents to uh, the schools uh, and uh, and finding ways to
0: differentiate compared to let's call them the local competitors. Yes, I mean going back, well even when I started becoming involved in this, you either had schools that were run by the local authority or the independent schools yeah. and of course along then came academisation which has gone through a, a a number of formats over the last 10 plus years and uh, We are now at a situation where academies are the norm and eventually the local authority-run schools will disappear. I mean, what's the current situation with the
1: academies? Yeah, well, at the moment, I think it's fair to say that in Kent, we've got a few academies, well, a few schools that are part of much larger academy groups with 10, 20, 30 schools in. But the majority are still quite small trusts with, let's say between three and half a dozen schools in. Now, the way that the, the, the government is trying to shape things for the future and, and over the course of the next uh, seven, eight, ten years is to make those trusts much larger. Um, they're talking about a minimum of ten schools into uh, inside each trust for it to run uh, in the way that they would like those trusts to be run. And it makes sense, sort of sitting, sitting here from the perspective of, of a trustee, of a MAT, a lot of the financial burdens that that, that, that smaller MATs experience um, would probably be absorbed within a larger MAT, thinking of economies of scale, uh, being able to use the same resources across multiple schools uh, and sharing practices and um, uh, different ways of doing things that are, that are either improving the curriculum or improving the efficiency in which the school is being run and that does lend itself that collaborative approach to to, to larger mats uh, potentially being uh, a more effective way of doing things. Now the risk I always think there is uh, as with all organisations that get bigger is not losing their identity. Lots of schools have particular reputations, particular specialisms, things that the local community like uh, and those definitely need to be maintained and schools definitely need to maintain their identities as schools rather than being swallowed up in let's say a more corporate feel. Uh, but but I think over the next few years we are we are going to see a lot of Larger mats I think we'll' speaking from the perspective of uh, of the local region of Kent um I, I can certainly see that a lot of the mats will uh will be looking to merge'll be looking uh or, or may get swallowed up by these bigger uh existing mats um and uh, and'll we'll face those challenges about their identity and um, maintaining what works well as well as adapting and and absorbing new experiences and
0: new do, do you think there's a geographical issue in this because i mean initially when marty academy trusts were coming off it was worth yeah. saying that initially you could be a standalone single academy school yeah yep. but uh, th- th- that's clearly not what the government want going forward but do you think there's something to be said for the larger mats being regional based because you were having trust that was spread all over the country and you do wonder how you can have any cohesion between them
1: yeah, I think there's certainly challenges. I think there always needs to be something in common, um, and, and geography is, is a very easy thing to have in common, uh, and grouping together within a particular town, a particular region, uh, makes a lot of sense. Other things in common schools might have is is, is particular specialisms, schools with particularly high reputation, and let's say for sport or theatre, might want to look at combining their efforts and, and, and building specialist trusts that focus on those areas alongside uh, learning. Uh, but I agree entirely with you, if those trusts are entirely spread out across the country, that does present very different challenges, particularly from a management perspective and maintaining, uh, maintaining a clear message and a clear way of doing things across the whole trust would be would be
0: challenging so because there's a there's a difference isn't there because one, once you've got the march academy trust and we talked about us being directors of a trust mm-hmm. that's not the same as being a, a school governor because you are a trustee of the whole organisation, yeah. and I, I know schools deal or trust deal with the they set up in a different way, but the general idea seems to be there will be local governing bodies yeah. within each school in the trust that then report back to them to the main trustees. But but the, the the powers of those governors are slightly different from when they were a standalone school.
1: Yes, I mean certainly what what I found uh, in my transition from being a, a governor at maintained school to to, to director trustee uh, within within a mat is the role is a lot more strategic um, yes. a lot less hands-on you know sort of walk around and, and, and make sure the health and safety boxes are all being ticked and things like that that's that's done more uh, on, on the local level which makes sense and and, and uh, as I say my, my trust is quite small so so that if you like as, as a board we, we we probably would have a bit of capacity to do things like that if we wanted to, but if the trust were to get much bigger um, and, and particularly if it were to be much more regionally diverse, um, then that just simply wouldn't be viable. So the role of trustee definitely needs to be on a more strategic uh, focused level. Yeah.
0: So what sort of support, I mean, it's easy for us as lawyers to look look at these things, but what sort of support can we give to up-and-coming trusts or schools that are considering academisation?
1: Yeah, um, well, Whitehead-Moncton, we're very lucky to have a team with lots of experience. In I think it. we're very lucky to have you
0: and me, to be perfectly
1: honest. <laughs> <it. laughs> yeah, definitely. No, definitely the, 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 the key element. Um, but no, we, we, we do have the benefit of lots of other uh, experienced individuals in different practice areas who all have good knowledge uh, of the education sector and, and can bring that to the table. Um, thinking thinking about firstly the, the starting point for any academy, the academisation process or, or or the merge, uh, the merger of two two trusts. Um, we we have corporate lawyers with lots of years of experience of in, in working corporate law in mergers yeah, and, and and bring that level of expertise to the table. Um, when 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 talking about academisation, uh, alongside that, any academisation is going to have property issues. So we we have a benefit of a, of colleagues who, um, who who are involved in that side of things and who know the property issues that schools face and and can help identify those either early on in an academisation or um, for our clients
0: on a day to day basis. That's always quite interesting because I'm sure parents never think. Who owns the land that the school's mm. on? I mean, what experience or where where have you found land lies? Who are the ownership? I mean, presumably it's not owned by the school. No, there, there can
1: be there can be all sorts of challenges when it comes to to to, 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 to property uh, and schools. And, and and actually thinking thinking more about independent schools uh, as well, you, you often find that that they might have little bits of land tucked away that either. Uh, a neighbour has left them in the will many years ago, or uh, that somehow have ended up on 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 their portfolio that aren't used, that could be used uh, better, that or, or, or that actually because of their location make no sense at all to be part of the school's ownership. So it's then thinking about, well, actually, do we do we need to cash in on that asset and perhaps sell um, sell the land on, or is there anything that we can? usefully do with it that that, that, that builds on the experience and, and, and the facilities that we have to offer as a school. Um, and there can be all kinds of issues, whether it's easements over um, land or tenancy issues or sort of drilling down on um, looking at trusts and uh, why, why particular land was left for the benefit <coughs> of a school and does it meet the requirements of the of the trust and all these sorts of things um, that uh, that uh, that pose quite a lot of property challenges, I think, for schools, um, as well as you know, sort of maintaining buildings, developing new facilities, um, you know, whether it's you know putting a swimming pool in or developing the, the old school hall and things like that. They all need some expert guidance and thinking about um, the, the the legal issues that are attached to to doing anything with the land
0: really. because so it comes back to what you said just now about the school is a business, mm. um, whether it's an independent school or whether it's uh, an academy trust and therefore that business is going to need to take advice. Um, not just about land issues, but also the managing of their budget. But I mean, what sort of yeah. other services can we offer?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, so I myself, I'm an employment law specialist. Um, I've, throughout my entire career, I've always worked with um, schools, uh, both independent and uh, and academies, um, advising them on disputes with teachers, advising them on changing terms of conditions of, of employment, tribunal claims, other disputes. Um, and um, it, it is a quite a specific sector, uh, as, as all regulated sectors are, I think, when it comes to employment matters, that there are different things that you need to take into account, different considerations, and being able to navigate your way around those is just as important, if not more so, than than knowing the simple legal principles um, that, that are attached to those. Um, I also help um, schools with um, anything data related, whether that's Freedom of Information Act requests um, or um, uh, data subject access requests, breach reporting, developing strategies on personal data. I always think it's really um, a lot of the rules around data protection are particularly pertinent to schools, bearing in mind the sensitivity. Yes. Uh, of the data that they hold, uh, a because it's generally about minors, uh, b because it might have other particularly sensitive issues. Looking at it from the family perspective, where where you've got um, you know sort of separated or divorced parents, potentially you've got orders against uh, one or other the parents that they can't have access, and and just managing uh, managing those kinds of situations, there is always a risk with those kinds of situations that, that you know, the, the wrong address falls into the wrong hands, for example, and um, that, that could be disastrous. So maintaining really high levels of uh, of data security um, and, and having those policies and procedures in place is critical, I think, from a school's perspective. Um, we also um, provide advice on commercial agreements, on debt recovery for independent schools, Certainly, that's that's work that um, that that our dispute resolution team uh, are accustomed to doing, Um, and then there's also um, the the aspects of of work that you do, Graham. Yes, we
0: we we flip it on its head, (laughs) don't we? We, uh, your half of the team, are looking to help the school run its business and all things that relate to that, and really, that's no different from any other business. In in the free market, they they've got to be run efficiently. They're going to have have issues. Um, I act for the school's customers, generally the parents, <laughs> um, and it covers a lot of areas. This this has grown out of uh, my work as a school governor. But for me, the biggest area at the moment is additional educational needs. Mm. Um, it is. It is a nightmare. Uh, it's massively underfunded. There's a, a white paper at the moment looking at looking at the problems that have arisen from it, but in, in a nutshell, I mean, schools have to look at the needs of their children, and if a child is not able to perform to the level of their peers, analysis needs to be undertaken as to yeah. as to why that is, and that can initially be by the school putting in place strategies and programs to try and help a child catch up. But of course, especially even at academy level, schools have a limited budget. They get they get a, an amount per pupil. Mm-hmm. And, if a, and if a pupil has a need above that, how are the school gonna fund that? Well, initially there's an expectation that they have to fund some of it themselves, but but um, Kent have um, a system whereby you can apply for additional funding, but that has been stretched to breaking point. And eventually you get to the stage where you have to consider whether an education, health and care plan needs to be put in place. And that's an analysis by the local authority um, on a child's needs with input from all the, uh, the specialists. And if they agree to carry that out, they then have time scales by which they must calculate the information, prepare the report. The report then goes to the parents, the parents have input into it. And the start of any education, health and care plan is a pen picture of the child and the family. So, what the child needs what the child likes doing so it's a a very personal document Mm. and you need the funding and the staff to do that and unfortunately what is happening is sometimes the local authority will refuse to undertake an assessment and you can appeal against that um, to a first-tier tribunal sometimes they will undertake an assessment and won't finish it or they will finish it and you're unhappy with it as a parent In those circumstances, again, there's a right of appeal. Timescales apply to that, but it's an appeal to a first-tier tribunal. One thing parents don't realise is you have the choice of school that's named in the plan, and the local authority have to follow your choice unless they can raise one of three defences to it. Two relate to the provision of the education, but the one they always flag up is it's not the most efficient use of resources. Now, the reason they often flag that one up because of the problems in the schooling system, a lot of pupils can only get the support they need by going into the independent sector. And you can have an independent school named on your EHCP, um, but the local authority often don't want to pay for that, yeah. so they will they will raise the um, not best use of resources. There is a limit, there's something called the Section 41 list, and. Um, Independent schools can apply to be on the Section 41 list, and that's approved by the Secretary of State. And any school that is on that list, it is assumed that can be named under an EHCP. Unfortunately, there are schools that aren't on that list, and there's no point in, as a parent, suggesting you want a school named that's not on the Section 41 list. Because whereas the duty is on the local authority to show why your child shouldn't go there, that flips if it's not a Section 41 school, and you have to show... Why your child should go, then it's virtually an impossible argument. But what the upshot of all this is, the local authority just can't deal with stuff. Mm. Um, I get situations with clients coming in to see me where they're just saying the local authority won't engage. You're meant to have a review after 12 months for your your, um, EHCP. Local authority aren't engaging on that. They're having meetings, not sending out amended forms. And it's down to funding. I mean, it used to be a time where... If you got your lawyer involved, the lawyer would send a letter to the local authority and that would generate a response. We're finding now the local authority aren't even coming back to us and it's getting to the stage where you, you have to issue the appeal and that now, to a certain extent, will prompt them into action. But they, they just haven't got the funding or the staff to deal with it.
1: Mm. Has there also been an increase, perhaps, in, in, in the number of uh, children, parents, schools that are recognising challenges that particular children face compared to a few years ago that's adding adding to the to the burden on the system as well?
0: Yes, I, there there are, it feels like there's a lot more application for education mm. health and care plans. Schools have been for a long time very alive to it but, I, but I, th- I think parents are much more so now as well and you don't, it doesn't need to be the school that applies for the education health and care plan, the parents can do it themselves but the issue you have is having access to the necessary um, expert evidence to yeah. support the need for it. And, and parents can find that difficult on their own, but that's something that we, we can talk to them about. But my first advice is engage with the SENCO at your school mm-hmm. and the SENCO will be an expert. The quality of SENCOs does vary from school to school, but in, in the main, my view is keep the SENCO as your friend. Yeah. They are there to try and help you with, uh, help your child through the school.
1: Yeah, there's a key element of their role yeah. is, is is making sure that it's inclusive, yes, and accessible to all yes. the pupils, isn't it? Yeah, you excellent. Know, sort
0: of. But yeah, I mean that uh, that has become one of the main issues. The other thing is is complaints. Um, schools, and this is something that. You can help schools with it from their yeah. side. Schools have to have policies. There are the there are the um, statutory policies yeah. and there are other policies that are recommended, and these policies must be reviewed ev- every year. So if you have a concern about something that's going on in the school, um, I always say to parents, look at the school relevant policy. So look at the behaviour policy, look at the behaviour policy. If there is an issue and you want to raise a complaint, follow the process under the school policy. Yeah. And the school have to do the same. And that's something that's becoming more and more common. I, I will often hear from parents saying, well, we want to make a complaint. And I will say to them, well, read the complaints policy, put your views in writing in accordance with the complaints policy and make your letter to the school even-handed.
1: Yeah. No, I think, I think that's true. And I think, I think it's also a true reflection that there are more complaints or an increasing number of complaints that are being raised um, compared to certainly if we look back five six years ago um, and a lot of those complaints will will generally be backed up by some kind of subject access request uh, or freedom of information act request or or depending on the school uh, and the circumstances so so they can be pretty complex issues uh, to get involved in from a school's perspective they could easily start swallowing up um sitting members of the senior leadership team um and and, and for example become a, a a more difficult um process to manage having to you know perhaps bring in trustees governors etc um to, uh, to 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 look at certain elements of them mm. um because uh, because other key senior people are, are are involved in the nature of the
0: complaint it it's interesting because uh, one of the things i always ask parents is what are they looking to achieve with regard to, mm. them, to a complaint i mean the the school can decide that maybe a policy needs changing or can offer an apology or can retract something but what the complaint system is not there for is for the, the the parent to get a financial award yeah. from the school that that's that's not the purpose of it um and I, I always say to parents, think long and hard about what you're you're wanting from this know what your objective is before you undertake that process yeah
1: definitely because it, 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 as with all all processes of a similar nature they can be quite draining personally, uh, emotively, and, 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 you know, uh, from a family perspective, particularly when the child's involved, um, they can be difficult processes for everyone.
0: The other one, unfortunately, is becoming more common, is the expulsion issue linked Mm -hmm. to the school's behaviour policy. I get a number of inquiries from parents whose child has either been given a fixed term or a permanent exclusion. And with that, with a an academy or a, a state school, there's a, a legislative framework that they have to follow. The yes. way the school will have to deal with it, the information the school will have to give, the letters they have to send out, and they have to follow that framework. And the local authority will be involved in an expulsion hearing. It's slightly different um, with an independent school because uh, a child's attendance at the independent school is governed by the parents' contract with mm. the school, yeah. and in reality the school can terminate that contract at any time and the yeah. contract will set out the terms that's so why I always say to parents in those circumstances look back look back at your contract and what you tend to find with independent schools is they will approach the parent and say look we'd like you to withdraw your child because if not we will expel yeah. uh, and in the in the academy sector they, they they sort of call that a managed move it's slightly different it's where the, the, the school moved the child from one school to another without there being need of a formal expulsion mm-hmm. in the independent sector you're, you're just terminating the contract and this is where it, 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 it can almost become litigious because if if an expulsion takes place it has to be ratified by the governing bodies they have to put together an exclusion panel and at that, at that hearing the, the head teacher will have to set it out to the Um, the the panel, the basis of the exclusion and why they've done that and the parents will have the opportunity to defend that and uh, and a decision has to be reached on that basis but it should be dealt with in a fair manner so that means if the school do have evidence that they're going to produce that should be produced to the parents a good time before the hearing there has to be a fair process has to be a transparent process what I've seen too many times is evidence being produced by the school a couple of days before an expulsion hearing, very, very badly taken statements that are so heavily redacted they don't actually really (laughs) say anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that's where, from my perspective, I can help parents. But I think from a school's point of view, uh, I think schools need to think about the evidential base they're putting together if they're trying to uphold an exclusion. What has become... More and more common, unfortunately, are drugs-related incidents. Mm. I mean, expulsion is always a last resort, but if you've got anything that involves violence, drugs, any form of abuse, that will lead to a uh, almost a, certainly an upheld exclusion.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, th- those sorts of issues. You know, bearing in mind the the, the nature of the school population, will will certainly, um, yeah, will certainly be dealt with quite he- well. Some would say heavy-handedly, but some would say with the appropriate level of severity, let's say.
0: And there are other things I get involved in, and so so it's cyclical with the year, so the admissions issue, Mm -hmm. 11-plus issue, appeal against 11-plus, choice of school. Uh, They're all things that work for both ways. The school need guidance on whether what they're doing is correctly, and and the parents need guidance um, as to what are their options if something's happened that they weren't expecting. I mean, what's been interesting this year, of course, is the GCSE and A-level results coming out having been had two years of various algorithms and, <laughs> and, and teacher assessments, and now that going back to children actually sitting exams. And something that has sort of passed me by. You had this year um, students sitting A-levels who didn't sit GCSEs. Their GCSEs were dealt yeah. with by way of um, assessment under that yep. problem, problem algorithm. So I must have been very, very daunting having the first exam you sit is an A, a level. level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, it's an area I find very, very interesting. And certainly I feel as a firm, we have a huge amount we can offer schools and parents.
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we certainly do. We certainly do. It, it's a, uh, as I say, from my perspective, it's something. It's an area I've worked in throughout my career. It's it, it's very interesting and, from my perspective, intellectually stimulating to, to to think about the various issues and and weigh them up. Not yeah. just have, um, you know, in other cases where I advise businesses, let's say it, it's looking at the legal position. It here it's looking at um you know the legal position the, the regulatory aspects the human aspects um probably a lot more than um the, than would be the case in in, uh, in, in, in you say a normal context because potentially um where, where for example a teacher is being dismissed we're not just talking about a short term Loss of earnings. We are probably talking about career defining moments, and uh, and people having to to you know sort of potentially not work again within the industry yeah. that they may have trained in for many years. Um, so it becomes quite emotive, quite challenging. Um, but it's 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 what we're here for, and uh, it's what we
0: enjoy doing. And under it all, the education system is fundamental to the running of exactly. our society. Yes. So it's important that it's properly advised and properly resourced. I agree, yeah. Interesting talking to you about <laughs> it. And you, grow. If anything's piqued your interest and you'd like to know some more about us, contact us through our website, um, whiteheadmoncton.co.uk. You can contact us on the phone through the switchboard, 01622 698 000. If you're really sad and would like to speak to either Antonio or myself, You can ask at reception or you can email us at our email addresses, which are grahamjones at wmlaw.uk or antoniofletcher at wmlaw.uk. Thank you for listening.